and welcome to Voices of Nexus, where experts discuss and debate issues surrounding mental health. Here in the U.S., it is a sad but common observation that our mental health system is broken. People who need help often can't or don't know how to get it, and resources remain underutilized due to stigma or lack of awareness. Many experience crisis before any intervention. Given the added pressures we face today, these faults are doubly exposed. But there are bright spots. There are visionaries working tirelessly to create a better tomorrow and move us from hopeless to hopeful. Here on Voices of Nexus, we will learn about good progress being made as it relates to the mental health of women, youth, and those in the justice system. This podcast is part of the larger Nexus initiative, sponsored by Otsuka America Pharmaceutical Inc. Please check us out at www.nexusmentalhealth.com. That's www.nexusmentalhealth.com. Or look us up on Facebook. Hi, I'm Gabe Howard, and I'm excited to be hosting a three-part podcast series, Voices of Nexus. In these podcasts, we will explore the experiences people have as they live with mental health challenges. Through their own stories, our guest brings to life the strengths, weaknesses, and gaps that exist in the mental health system. Each episode focuses on a community with a unique and largely unmet mental health needs, including women, youth, and people in contact with the justice system. I hope these conversations spark new ideas about how we can all be part of the solution on the front lines of mental health. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Nexus. My name is Gabe Howard, and I am here with Trey Gabriel. Trey, welcome to the show. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure to be on. Thank you for having me. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time with us. Now, in preparation for this show, you you sent me a little paragraph that sort of piqued my interest. You talked about depression. You said, I've hit rock bottom twice. And that struck me as very interesting wording because most people think that you can only hit rock bottom once. Can you talk about your story a little bit and explain the phrasing hit rock bottom twice? Yeah. So, and I always like to preface this when I talk about, you know, those times in my life with, I don't blame the individuals that were involved in those situations at all. I saw this great quote the other day where it's like, in life, you're going to hurt people. That's a part of life. That's a part of the process. So there are people who have hurt me or just a situation, whatever you may have it, but I don't have any ill will towards them. So I was just a preface that because a lot of times we talk about relations and whatnot like one person or one party gets villainized and it's not at all what I want to do but just to give a brief synopsis of what happened the first one was after my you know high school girlfriend high school sweetheart you know how that goes first love you think you're gonna get married and you have kids names picked out and it's all gonna work out and it's all rainbows and fairy tales and it's that first, you know, realization of the real world and adulthood and not everything goes as planned. And so that took a unfortunate turn and distance was a factor in that. And just, you know, it's really hard, especially at a young age, especially when you have the whole world at your disposal, which means you have a lot more people at your disposal than probably our parents had and our grandparents had, where it's not just the kid down the street. It's, you know, it's the whole world that you can connect with and talk to. There's dating apps, there's everything, there's social media. So you really can't get away from it, right? It's like this constant pushing on us of mm-hmm. opinions and topics. Exactly. That- and options as well. It's like the situation was really hard. Distance, I was a year or two older. So I started off in college. She's in high school, you know, kind of beginning a relationship. And it's just, it was a really hard situation for both of us. And you know, it just resulted in her choosing someone else over me. And 
my ego was bruised, was shattered, was hurt, was heartbroken. I've kind of been interested in mental health. I was considered to be the uh, the friend, the therapist friend for a long time. I love to be compassionate individuals. I love to make people smile. I love to just sit and listen, like without judgment. And like people knew that whatever they confided into me was going to stay there. So I was already kind of, you know, like as a psychologist, you got to sign like different disclosure agreements to where, you know, their privacy is, is concealed. I was already on board with that stuff, like 13, 14 years old. Yeah. So I was already into the mental health, but I never really understood what like depression or just really like severe sadness felt like or looked like. I can hear it. I can sympathize, but I can never really empathize with people that would come to me. Oh, my boyfriend broke up with me. My girlfriend cheated on me. My dog of 15 years died. Like I, I never really got slapped in the face or something like that until my first breakup. And we all know love hurts. And some people say, oh, just suck it up and go over on to the next one. There's plenty of fish in the sea. But if you really love someone, like losing them feels like like they die. You know, is it, how it felt to me. Is is how I will equivalent it. Like breakups hurt a lot. Like let's not you know be shy about that. And it hurt and me think, a lot. And of course, you mentioned that it was your first breakup. I, I think when we hit a certain age, we start to look at teenagers and young adults relationships as meaningless because of course we've moved on and time does heal all wounds but the the reality is is how how old were you during your first breakup this was going into my junior season so i was like i was probably just turned 20 years old yeah so you're 20 years old you've got your first breakup and you've never dealt with this before and i do think that adults often look at young adults and think, oh, no, you'll be fine. You'll get over it. And I suppose that we, we all did get over it, right? But that's not really helpful in the moment. It's, it's a bit like looking at somebody who broke their leg and saying, ah, six weeks, you'll be fine. So I do think that we give a disservice to young people by not paying attention to that. Now, here you are, you're 20 years old, you're heading into your junior year. Now, you were a college athlete, correct? Right. I played football. You were a hell of a football player, right? You weren't just a, a regular football player. You were, you were kind of a football star. Yeah, I, I like to think so, at least. <laughs> <laughs> but now this thing has happened to you. And for the first time with, with the breakup, whether it's age, ego, whatever, here you are, you have your first mental health crisis. You have your mm-hmm. first d- depressive episode that you yourself recognize. Mm-hmm. What do you do? Yeah, and... Uh- one thing I do want to, to highlight is you saying, especially the adults, the adult, a lot of adults in my life, I don't want to say they failed me, but they did not know exactly how to help me in that situation. There was a lot of, like you said, just putting a bandaid on the situation. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm sure I'll get over one day, but that doesn't help me right now. I'm still figuring, like navigating this all by myself. And that was kind of the worst thing about it was I was navigating this all by myself. I kind of, test the waters. I started reaching out to people that I trust. And again, I'm not blaming anyone. I don't think it's their fault for not being able. I was looking for me and other people. I was looking for someone that would just sit down and just listen to me, just, you know, help me through it. Like I've done to so many other people. So I'm thinking, okay, now it's my turn. And I really felt like I didn't have that. You know, my best friends are my best friends because they make me laugh because I can trust them because they're there for me because they're my, you know, high school football team and whatnot. They're not my best friends because they can be as compassionate about the situation as I am. And so I was putting people who could not do what I do in my position. And obviously it's like, you know, having LeBron James go become quarterback of the New England Patriots. Like he's a 
heck of an athlete, but <laughs> he's not, you know what I mean? He's not an NFL quarterback. So it's not a strong was, suit. Right. So, and that was a struggle for me too. It, it made me think, wow, I have nobody around me. Like all my friends are fake. Like I'm there for all these different people and they're not there for me. And this girl that I love left me like, and you know, my family and, and I'm being a black male, mental health and therapy and all those different things are something that's just not really marketed or advocated in our communities. If you have a problem, go pray about it. It's kind of the thing of, you know, and I, and I did, I dove into the scriptures and I did help, but I need, need someone, a professional that can just walk me through my feelings and let me know my feelings were okay. And they're valid and that these things happen and that it's normal. And as a male, it's okay to sit in your bed and cry. But I'll tell you, I, I didn't go to class for like two weeks. I, you know, stopped eating I lost a lot of weight, which is not good as a college football player to be losing weight. The only thing I did, the only reason why I left bed was to go to football practice because I had an old-fashioned football coach. It was, you know, that, that wasn't going to fly. You know, oh, I'm sorry, my girlfriend broke up with me. And that's just not something in the football world. I could tell my teachers I'm not going to go to class today and they're not really going to monitor me, but I had to be at football. But that was the only reason why I would leave my bedroom was it wasn't to eat, it wasn't to do anything. The only time I ate was at football when they, you know, gave you snacks or post-workout, they gave you a, a protein shake. That was really it. So I'm losing five, 10 pounds in a matter of days, really weeks. So I was really, like I said, rock bottom physically, mentally, emotionally. I felt alone. I just was in my own dorm all day, just listening to Drake's Take Care album all the time and just really in my feels. So it was really a tough time for someone that considers himself to be an optimistic person or to be a very adventurous and outgoing person to really just cave in and just not have anything positive or anything that's making me happy in my life. It sounds like in some ways football did help because if it was the only thing that you were doing during that depressive episode, it, it does mean that you were doing one thing. Did football help you with your mental health struggles? It did just because it forced me to do something to be active. It kept me in some sort of a routine. It did force me to eat. It forced me to be around other individuals, you know what I mean? Which helped to, otherwise I would just stay in my room all the time and just true, pure authenticity. And I, and I don't, some people may laugh about this, but like, like heartbreak really hurts. Like, like I, I say heartbreak can kill people. And I, at no point did I ever get so far as to where something like that became an option. But, you know, it was really the lowest point of my life where I was like, I just really don't care about anything. You know what I mean? Like, however life goes, I don't care. Because all I could think about was this pain. You know, you're not sleeping. You know, the nights and the mornings are the worst. The daytimes are kind of okay. The sun's out. You know, you get that vitamin D. But when the sun's down and you're just alone in your thoughts, I don't know about you or other people, but when I go to bed, I just kind of think about scenarios. And normally they're good and happy scenarios before I go to sleep. But now it's bad scenarios. It's who is she with? What is she doing? What are they doing? What are, you know, why am I not enough? Like, what's wrong with me? Like, am I too short? Is it because, you know, I'm black, whatever? Because that, you know, that first relationship, I was dating a white girl and it was never me that was a problem. It was just situation, circumstances, you know, now I have the mindset, life's about experiences. You know what I mean? People are in your life for however long they're meant to be in your life. And those that stay a lifelong are, are meant to be there for it the whole lifetime. But that was just supposed to be my first experience in love. And I wasn't ready to let go of that yet, but it's what I had to do. 
anybody that spent any time in the mental health community is well aware of the stigma of mental health. It's pervasive, it's discriminatory. But one of the things that you said is that there is an additional stigma in the black community. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, and, and I'm just speaking from my perspective. Everything I said, I'm speaking from my personal perspective. But growing up, and we kind of, I'm going to be honest, like kind of make fun of that. Like if you go to a therapist or a lot of times we call it a shrink, we don't even call it a psychologist, at least in my family, in my community, everyone calls it a shrink. I guess a shrink's more of like a TV role. It's more of a, they see you laying down on a couch, looking up at the ceiling while someone behind a desk is writing down notes and nodding their head. And, you know, they think it's kind of this waste of time and waste of money and just be resilient and just pray about it and just, simply like be happy like it's just like, like it's a flip of a switch you know and and that's kind of the community that I you know was I even thought to myself like literally just be happy like like who cares what happens if you know life goes on whatever and it wasn't until I had to feel that pain to where I realized whoa like this is something serious like I'm not really in control of my thoughts like I'm not really in control of my emotions like I need help like I need a professional that has seen this a hundred times that my situation is always particular to my situation, but that can help me guide through this. But the reality is nobody encouraged me to go get help. Like that was kind of really, it's, it's kind of like a weak thing to do or, or that's for rich white people, rich white people. They have money to waste on a psychologist. Like those are the things that I'm hearing. You know, I was not encouraged to go and seek professional help for the things that I was going through. And again, I don't blame anybody for that that's just kind of how we've all been conditioned and then you know taking it a step further the lack of access to mental health in these communities not just the black communities but marginalized communities all over who and those are the communities that really needed to, to help deal with things like intergenerational trauma things with like socioeconomic factors and therapy is expensive you know and as you know these psychologists they get their phd go to school for a long time or even they just get their master's they get extra qualifications. They got to make a living. It's already an industry where I don't think people get paid enough, but it's very expensive. And it's another barrier that doesn't allow people from my community to want to go and take advantage of those resources. So yeah, it's definitely an uphill battle, you know, at least for myself thinking about thinking back to 20 year old me and, and how I was raised to look at mental health in general. It's a stigma and it's something we all kind of face. Trey, one of the things that I'm kind of hearing is that it might be hard for you as a black male to find another African-American therapist. You might be, I, I hate to use the word stuck with, but if a marginalized community isn't seeking therapy, then chances are that same community aren't producing, for lack of a better word, therapists. Has that been a problem in your experience where you're, you're sitting across the the couch, for lack of a better word, staring at somebody that you just don't feel understands your mental health journey or your life, or I, I believe you said uh, intergenerational trauma. So they just really don't understand who Trey is, but of course you're also relying on them for mental health help. Yeah, so when I first kind of said, hey, I want to make mental health a, a career thing for myself, I don't know if it was Mental Health America or if it was the Kennedy Forum, but it was one of those conferences I was at and it was an alarming statistic that said 4% of psychologists are black, 2% of psychiatrists are black. So you mean to tell me like 96 plus percent of 
individuals working in this space don't look like me. Like that's, that's wild. And it wasn't until I really made a switch my uh, senior year of my, my last semester, senior year of uh, college, of uh, undergrad. And I took a, a mental health course. And not only was I the only black person or person of color in the course, I was also the only male. So it, it's a seminar style course and I'm one of 15, maybe 20 individuals. And it's all white and a couple of Latin American women that are in the course. So it really feels alone. And I get that same feeling every time I go to a different conference or a different training or a different webinar. I'm shocked or surprised to see someone that looks like me. I'm always like, whoa, like there's somebody else. I've met some, some great professionals, Kojo Sarfo, who's like now a TikTok star. He's a board member for the Floss Foundation, which is the company that I worked with. Rashawn Miller is someone else who's been kind of a great role model to me. He's based out of North Carolina. There's a couple others, but it's like shocking. Like, it's like you remember every face you see when they enter those spaces. And it's kind of, you look at each other like, hey, I see you. Because most of the times you don't. And, and not only is it hard to, from my perspective as the, someone that's trying to work in that industry, but you got to reflect and think about when you're on the other side of the desk or the couch or whatever you may have it. It is definitely difficult. I know a lot of people who say I would only do therapy if I could speak to a black therapist. And they're like, and that's not going to happen. Like they're, they're already saying that's not even a possibility. So it's like all these people, because mental health doesn't discriminate. It impacts all of us. It doesn't matter your sexual orientation, your gender, your height, your socioeconomic factor. It doesn't care about any of that. It's, it, it affects all of us. But you have this grouping of people who are already turned off from the whole thing. And in my opinion, and I say this all the time, I'll probably say it again on this show on what we're talking I think the same way that everybody has a dentist, everybody has a doctor, and you don't necessarily go to them all the time, but you check in with them at least, I mean, at least once or twice a year, in my experience, I would love to see a world where everyone has a therapist or a licensed mental health professional that you just check in with and they can help, you know, maybe find some of those nicks and nags and things that you're avoiding or you're not aware of. You go to the doctor, oh, hey, you have high cholesterol. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Okay, make these changes in your life. Oh, hey, like you seem to be having, you know, high level of anxiety. Did you notice that? Oh, I don't know. I guess not. Well, hey, here's how we can work on that. Just, just simple things like that can change people's lives. And I want that for everyone, but I definitely want that for people that look like me. There's a barrier for mental health care for pretty much everybody, but we know that it disproportionately affects, as you said, people who look like you. Trey, I, I know that you don't have all the answers, but what are some guesses or ideas to serve underrepresented communities? It seems almost like we spend a lot of time identifying the problem, but we don't often talk about ways to resolve the issue. And I, I want to give you an opportunity to speak on that. I don't have all the answers and I'll be very upfront about that. You're telling me that you can't resolve the mental health crisis <laughs> in America on the podcast? Right. It's an unfair question, right? But it, it doesn't that always seem the question that gets posed to your community? Okay, well, there's your complaint. What do you want us to do about it? Mm -hmm. and, and then we all just sort of walk away like, haha, they don't know either. That's got to be a burden. And it's got to be something that you have noticed. The first thing that I would say is we got to look at, and when we talk about access to, to mental health care is, you know, the socioeconomic factors. We do know that when it comes to the wealth gap and wealth inequality and whatnot, it disproportionately affects marginalized communities, you know, people of color. So that directly correlates to mental health. 
if I can't afford to get that help, it's a luxury. You know what I mean? And mental health should not be a luxury. To me, this should be just like you have a doctor, you have a dentist and whatnot, you should have a therapist or at least access to one. But, and this might be a larger problem like wealth inequality and, and, and wealth gap or whatnot, you know, how, you know, a black woman gets paid 50 cents to a dollar of a white man. I don't know if that's the exact number, but, you know, that's a larger issue, a larger socioeconomic issue, a larger political issue, but it directly affects the amount of people that are going to be looking for, you know, mental health resources. Not only that, but more importantly, it's listening, you know, listening to the community. A lot of times people want to, they want to solve issues. They want like a one size fits all hat. Like, hey, let's put a one size fits all they should solve everyone's problems at one time. And it's like, that's not how this is going to work. We need to listen to the communities, listen to what they're saying, what they need, and opening up a dialogue to have those discussions. I don't know the answers. I can tell you how I can be better served as an individual, but I don't know how my neighbor down the street, you know, wants things to be served. And if we get enough voices to talk about it and enough ears to listen, I think we can then develop something moving forward but I don't know the answers right now. I know the first thing is the socioeconomic factor, something that I'm very passionate about, because I think that is just a trickle-down effect of a lot of different problems, and mental health just being one of them. Over the past 18 months, America has really been forced to witness and experience a lot of things that I think that we have been ignoring for a long time. Obviously, nobody could have predicted the pandemic, but Reasonably speaking, we could have predicted the social justice issues that, frankly, we've ignored for a long time. Now, I can speak as a white male and tell you how I felt about the media's coverage, but that's largely irrelevant. How did you, as a Black man and your community, take in the police brutality videos, the social justice videos, the things that have happened? Yeah, I mean, when, when it comes to police brutality and it's an endless list of names, you know, George Floyd, Amon Aubrey, it's an endless list of names. And every time a new video goes viral and, and you see a building on social media, a lot of times it starts on Twitter and then it kind of just divides out to different platforms. And to me, it's, it's a movie I've already seen before. It's a movie I've already seen before. It's a movie I've already seen before. And it actually took me a long time to watch the full eight minutes and 46 seconds of George Floyd's death. I just didn't, like, I heard him crying for his mom, and I was just like, I don't want to finish this. Uh, I can't watch it. It wasn't until later on where I felt comfortable watching it. And every time it's re-triggering, it's, it's PTSD. Intergenerational trauma is a real thing, you know? Like, the reason why I have fears of, of cops or, you know, different things, and, and no disrespect to the people that put on their, you know, uniform every day and go make a living and, and try to make the community safe, but the reality is there is a problem. There is tension between police and the black American population. Yeah, I realize the history of why cops are even a thing. It started off as a slave patrol. They were literally started off to police the black community. If you go back in time, like America was founded without cops. So things were running and things were rolling without cops. Once slaves started being released, the slave patrol kicked in. And literally the sheriff badge looks the same as a slave patrol badge did it's a little bit different but the basis of it is the same so you're telling me back in the time where my people were raped and murdered and beaten for the most small minor things where dogs were treated better than we were 
and you have a lot of the same things, a lot of the same practices, a lot of the same just mannerism about you today, maybe your uniform is a little bit different. Maybe you call yourself a different name. I understand it's not the same in 2021 as it was in 1865, but there's too many similarities and that trauma which is passed down generation to generation and there's too many similarities in their action. There's too many similarities in the policies of America. Everyone's aware of this. If you're not aware of this, you choose not to be. But it went from slavery to segregation to Jim Crow to private prison practices and it's all the same thing with a different name and with a different flavor, with a different twist to it. So when I see these videos, all that comes into play and it's just re-traumatizing. It's just, I feel the same pain my dad felt, my grandfather felt, my great-grandfather felt. It's the same thing over and over again. It's really just exhausting. But I do appreciate that George Floyd seemed to be a turning point. And maybe it's because this happened during a pandemic and people were just looking for entertainment or looking for things to be interested in. But I went from, Trayvon Martin is, is the first thing that kind of woke me up. I was like a 17-year-old kid walking home, ends up dead. The dispatcher told the guy not to pursue him. They got in a tussle. He ended up dead. To me, it's clear as day. But somehow he got off. And I had a lot of fight with my white friends about that, you know, because to them, and I understand it, to them, there's just no way that a police officer would ever have ill intent. I understand George Zimmerman wasn't a police officer. He was a community watcher, whatever you may have it. But a person in power would ever use that power against someone just because of the color of their skin. So then they couldn't fathom that. And it wasn't until George Floyd, literally, people that I argue with on Facebook, the Facebook messages are still there, would come back and say, yo, you were right. Back in middle school when Trayvon Martin had, you were right, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for even engaging that. I, I, I now see what you saw all this time. I can't feel what you feel. And I appreciate that. I feel like we are, again, I told you I'm an optimist person. I feel like we are moving in the right direction, but we're not there yet. And I don't think we'll be there during my kids' time. And I don't even know if I'm still answering your question or not, because obviously this is something that, you know, invokes a lot of passion in me. But, you know, it was a very traumatizing event, George Floyd and, and everything going on. And, but since then, there's been a lot of names since George Floyd that aren't getting the same recognition and, and the same value of, of attention that they deserve. So, you know, that's just kind of my, I know, I, I don't know if I mentioned the question, I just kind of just passion just kind of took over there. Switching gears ever so slightly, just to talk about Trey. Now, of course, obviously, while your community has had a mental health journey, you personally have had a mental health journey. And you have described over and over again, and everything that I've read and everything that I've seen, that football helped shape you as an adult, your transition from football to the real world, I believe you called it. I think that this is a fantastic juxtaposition. And I would love to end with you telling your story of how football helped you with your mental health and helped transition you into adulthood. Yeah. So, and I actually, I spoke at the Mental Health America conference in June, so not too long ago, about this. And uh, the title of our presentation was Lessons in the Resilience from the Sports Field. I co-presented with Flawless Foundation founder, Janine Francolini. And we kind of talked about all this. And what we focused on were these protective factors that help develop resilience. And there's a lot of them, but we focus on like nurturing attachment, knowledge, the development of stages of this, the social connections, the concrete support. So that what that looks like is like the locker room, the team building, and the community. Community is 
such a huge factor in mental health. Feeling like you belong somewhere, feeling safe is like very important. And I think sports teams do that and social emotional competence. So things like football, sports in general, but football puts you in a lot of, you know, positions of adversity, whether that's competing for a role on the team. And sometimes you win that, sometimes you lose that. So you're playing less than you want. Everybody wants to be a star. Everybody wants to play a lot. Not everybody gets that. You know, there's only so much playing time to go around. There's only so much glamour and, and whatnot. And, you know, or, or fighting your hardest to win a football game and losing. You know, sometimes you give it your all and you're just not good enough. And these are all things that I think prepared me for life. So I really attribute a lot of that to football and, you know, just these protective factors that it offered me. And it's also has offered as of late these role models of resilience. So the two that I kind of spoke about during the presentation was Kevin Love, who's a, you know, NBA champion, you know, Olympic basketball winner, gold medalist, like he's done it all, played with LeBron James, he did it all. And he spoke about having anxiety and having panic attacks during a basketball game. And that's something that I could relate to because once I got to playing at Columbia, I started getting anxiety and panic attacks and it was competitive anxiety. It was real life anxiety. It was the whole thing. So seeing this NBA player say, Hey, I also dealt with that was awesome to see. And then Brandon Marshall, another one, Brandon is interesting because early in his career, he was considered to be like this troubling football player. You know, he actually, he's a star receiver, but got traded away from the Broncos because they said he's like, he has a locker room cancer. And the reality was people just misunderstood him. And they misunderstood his diagnosis. So he was later diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And if mental health was a more openly discussed thing, instead of him being shipped and traded from team to team, his talent was undeniable, but people felt like they couldn't control him. They felt like he had an attitude problem. But the reality is he had a mental health challenge that was going undiagnosed and untreated. So those are just kind of the overall things that we talked about. But I really, really, I think football shaped me in a lot of ways, but I definitely think it made me more compassionate. I think it made me more, and also too, is, is seeing your teammates struggle or playing your friend. And after you won a big game, my last championship I ever won, I won against one of my good friends. And being able to look at him and seeing him crying and seeing him show emotion, because sports is one of the, the rare places where men I feel like are allowed to cry. Seeing him cry and be able to console him, like, and all my joy and emotion and positivity, and I worked so hard for this, and the gratifying feeling I felt, I can still look over there and empathize with someone and put myself in their shoes and say, hey, like, I know what the alternative was for me, and that's what you're going through, and to, to be there for them. I, so I just really think it allows you to just be a better person. And maybe that's my experience. If you don't like sports, then you probably hate being out there practicing in the hot sun and running and you know the bumps and bruises that come along with it. And that's true, too. I don't enjoy that part of it either, but I think it has given me the tools to deal with a lot of things I don't like about sports, which has given me the tools to deal with a lot of things I don't like a lot about life. It's kind of the way I look at it. Trey, thank you so much for being here. Now, way back at the beginning of this show, I asked you about hitting rock bottom twice. Now, the first one was your first girlfriend, and I know we talked about that, and that led into a great conversation, but I want to make sure that you have the opportunity to tell all of our listeners about the second time that you hit rock bottom so that we can bookend this episode super nicely. 
Yeah, awesome. Uh, I actually forgot to tell you this story because I got so involved in the first one. But the good thing about that is the first time I went through a breakup, I didn't handle it well at all. I actually handled it horribly. I went, I just kind of locked myself within. The second time, similar situation, college girlfriend this time, I graduated a little bit early, long distance, whatever you may have, a similar scenario, ends up kind of choosing another person. And again, like that's not a representation of her character at all. It's more just situation. It's just a tough situation to be a part of. And, you know, things happen, life happens. But I handled that situation a lot better, largely because of my experience. First, After that first heartbreak, I was like, man, life could never get this bad. I, I got out of that. That's probably the hardest of my life. And a couple of years later, I'm like, whoa, this feeling, like, wait, wait, I'm not eating again. Wait, wait, hold on. I'm not sleeping again. Like, hold on. Like, life's not fun anymore. Like, ah, man, here we go again. But I was very, and part of it is I've also learned a lot. Obviously, you can grow, you mature and whatnot. But I learned more about mental health. And so I, I had more resources at my disposal. I had more education. I had more exposure. And I just did things differently. This time, I you know, confided in friends. But I didn't put pressure in them to solve my issues. I confided in a way that I knew they could help me. You know, So I put them in better positions to be good friends to me. I understood that just because they're my friend doesn't mean that they can do everything for me. I wouldn't expect my doctor to fix my car when it broke. So, you know, it's, it's part of it is understanding how you can put your friends. You can't always look for you and other people, but you know the strengths of the individuals around you. So, you know, you know what? Ah, man, this friend right here, he's my funny friend. I don't want to laugh right now. I'm not going to talk to him about this yet. And when things get going on, hey, now I can use some laughter. Let me, let me talk to him, let him know what's going on so he can cheer me up a little bit. So it's part of it was putting my friends in better positions to serve me during that tough time. Another thing too was I got professional help because your friends aren't your therapists. Your friends are not there to pull you out of depression. Depression's hard. You know, being at rock bottom is hard. And as much as your friends love you, just because they can't serve that role for you doesn't mean that they don't want to be there for you. But that's a very hard position to put them in. So I went to the professionals to professionally help me. And, and I mean, I, again, I couldn't afford a, a hundred dollar an hour therapist, but I was in a graduate school at the time and I went to the, the school services, you know, and obviously they have a lot of people they have to deal with, but it helped. They helped me through that process. They told me, you know, what I can do. They helped me just internalize what's going on and just look at it at different, do different lenses. So that helped a lot. And I was just very keen on having a routine. I made sure to try to go to bed early, make sure I can get some sleep. Even that I, I bought these like this tea packet. It's like nighttime tea that like helped me get a little more drowsy. So I would forcefully go to sleep and I woke up in the morning and the first thing I did was jump out of bed and go work out. First thing I did, because I knew if I laid in bed and I might be there all day, got out of bed, jumped up. I worked out. I got the best shape of my life because I had a lot of energy that I could just use pushing weights. And I, I stayed on top of my nutrition. When you're kind of sad and depressed, I mean, at least for me, I'm not a, like a binge eater. I do the opposite. So it got to the point where like no food really tasted amazing. So I could eat healthier. I get that. That's my kind of thing. But I could eat healthier. So I was also putting in foods that gave me energy because a lot of my energy is being drained through this tough process. So I'm eating healthier foods that provided more energy, healthy fats, healthy carbs and whatnot. So it's really a total process. The recovery wasn't just 
dealing with the breakup, it's like, okay, how can I totally improve my life and move forward? Because the breakup kind of was a triggering point for it all, but it really just highlighted other holes in my life where like I just wasn't living right or I just wasn't happy and, and it just all came crashing down. At it felt like it all came crashing down at once, but the reality is I was probably using a girlfriend to mask a lot of other issues in my life. So yeah, I just kind of really looked within and you know, I reached out. That was the first step. I got professional help. I, you know, shared my story with my friends. I got vulnerable. I was honest with them and I stuck to a routine. And those are really the key pillars that I think helped me get through that process a lot faster the second time than I did the first time. And I didn't blame anybody. You know, I didn't, not even myself. There was really nobody to blame. This was just a life event that I had to get through. So I just really thought of it a different way. And it was still super hard. I'm not acting like it was all rainbows. I was smiling through you know, going through a breakup, it was hard, you know, but it was easier to get through the second time than it was the first time. Well, Trey, I think I speak for everybody when I say that I hope you don't hit rock bottom a third time. But if you do, I do truly believe that you will handle it better than the first two, because it sounds like optimism, improvement, and constantly moving forward is probably one of your core messages. Yeah, definitely. But I also want to say I did give myself time to have a pity party. I think that's important. Now, a pity party ends just like any other party ends. So you got to be cognizant of that. But feeling your feelings is is a huge thing for me. Like, it's okay to lay in bed all day and just cry and just eat junk food and, and do what you need to do. Like I always said, do whatever makes you possibly happy. Do whatever it is that you want to do for a short period of time to really feel what you're feeling, get it all out. But at some point you gotta say, okay, game time. Like, just like sports, okay, it's game time. Like now it's time, it's gonna be hard. But now I'm ready to embark on this journey. I got all my crying out, I got all my you know, guilty pleasures out. Now it's time to go. So definitely think that, you know, the having the routine and, and doing all those things are important, but it did start, I wanna be very honest about that. It did start with my feet on a little 10 minute pity party, so. Trey, thank you so much for being here. I enjoy being here. Anytime I could help and share my story, I, I love the opportunity. So thank you for allowing me to do that. Thanks for listening to Voices of Nexus. Don't forget to check us out at www.nexusmentalhealth.com. That's www.nexusmentalhealth.com. Or look us up on Facebook 